back when my wife and I had cable, we used to love watching a show called The, uh, the Fixer Upper. Any, any Fixer Upper fans here? Yeah, right? Uh, where the hosts, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they would help countless couples who were on a budget purchase a lower-priced home and then renovate it into their dream home. And so after the home was purchased and designed, the crew would begin the renovation. And now the first day of construction, it was always known, it was always celebrated as Demo Day, as Demo Day. And it is exactly what it sounds like, just total demolition. They were armed with sledgehammers and they go in with crowbars and they go throughout the whole house, knocking down walls, ripping up carpet, tearing apart the kitchen and bathrooms so they can build it up, renovate it, fix it up into their dream home. Because before the new floors, fixtures and appliances can come in, all the old things must be torn out. Now there's something to the Christian life that follows this pattern as well. If we want God to renovate our hearts, our minds, our habits, our lives, then we have to experience a removal. We need a demo day of our own. We need old things to pass away. We need our old hearts to be taken out of us, those hearts of stone, and we need to receive a heart of flesh. We need our own thought, our old thoughts, our old worldviews that were captive to sin And the patterns of this world, we need that to be transformed. We need our minds to be filled with new truths, new new passions, new thoughts. We need um, old habits to die so that we can receive a new lifestyle, a new pattern that comes from Christ. Well, if you have your Bibles, um, Jesus talks about this. Jesus talks about old things needing to be cut off. He talks about our own demo day. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 27 to 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. This passage is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he's teaching his disciples on what it means to obey the law, what it means to be holy and follow him. This is what he says about how we should view and handle sin. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Amen. The word of the Lord. Well, we've been going through a a series titled Renovation by Grace. And this entire series has been about experiencing the transforming uh, work of Christ in our lives by the power of the gospel. Now, when we talk about being renovated by grace, we can often misunderstand this concept by thinking that it must mean that, that we as Christians take an entirely passive approach to renovation, that God's just going to change us. We just kind of sit there and come to church on time, and the music's going to play, the preacher's going to preach, and then we'll just be changed as, as if this was just a passive you know, experience for us, as if our obedience, our resolve, our discipline mean nothing in our renovation. I want to tell you that that's simply not true. 
And if you've been trying to autopilot your way through your spiritual life, have you guys ever tried to do that? Just autopilot your way through the spiritual life. The odds are you're probably not getting anywhere, right? If you don't read your Bibles, you don't memorize any more verses. You don't know the word of God anymore. You gotta, you gotta read it, right? If you don't spend time in prayer, then, then congregational prayer, you're never gonna say no, yes to this. You're like, I cannot do that, right? Um, if you never worship, spend time with God, ideas of awe and majesty and glory, those are distant ideas. Friends, if we aim for nothing, we'll hit it every time, right? If we aim for nothing, we'll hit it every time. And too many of us aim for nothing in our spiritual lives. We have no ambition, no goal, no passion, no unction to be transformed in the likeness of Christ. Friends, today we're gonna see that uh, obedience matters. That resolve, sacrifice, and discipline matter. But alone, they're not enough, okay? Discipline, resolve, passion, obedience, in and of themselves, they are not enough to produce genuine transformation and renovation. But when they are aligned with the word and will of God, when they are surrendered to the spirit of God, when they are motivated by the grace of God, then and only then can we experience true change. That's what the series is all about, okay? This is what it means to be renovated by grace, to follow God's plan, to trust in his power, not only to save us, but to change us. The title of today's message is Demo Day. It's Demo Day. And we're talking about how to kill sin in our lives. How to kill sin in our lives. The Puritans called this the mortification of sin. And this phrase was made famous by a theologian named John Owen. He wrote a book titled The Mortification of Sin. It's on my desk, uh, super short, actually very readable. But in that book, he wrote the famous phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is Jesus' point in our passage today, is it not? If your right eye causes you to sin, what are we to do? We're to tear it out and throw it away. And if our right hand causes us to sin, what are we supposed to do? Not just kind of slap it, not look at it and scorn it. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off. You should cut it off and throw it away. For better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, what do we do with this passage, right? We're all, thank, we're all grateful that Jesus isn't literally telling us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands. So what do we do? What do we do with this passage without becoming ascetics and masochists who hate ourselves and think punishing our bodies is the way to godliness? How do we do this without becoming legalistic and fanatical, believing that our work and our effort will save us? Most importantly, how do we do this by the grace of God, by the spirit of God, and not merely by the works of our hands? Isn't that the question? Isn't that the challenge of sanctification, which is the process of being made holy more like Jesus? Isn't that such a challenge? It either feels like it's gonna be all God or all me, but this kind of, this partnership where our obedience aligns with his will and we experience grace and life and power, that is so foreign to us. That is so mysterious to us. Well, I wanna to try to answer these questions in two broad sections today. 
First, I want to talk about our motivation to kill sin. Our motivation to kill sin. Where does that come from? How is Jesus trying to motivate us and encourage us to kill sin, to mortify sin through this very clear passage in Matthew? Uh, After that, we'll look at some practical steps on how to kill sin. So we're going to look at the motivation. After that, we're going to look at how, how to kill it. Well, many of us struggle with motivation, do we not? We are the kind of indifferent, apathetic generation, especially if you're my age and younger, right? Indifference is one of our great struggles, right? Apathy is one of our great uh, sins. We struggle with motivation, motivation to change, motivation to grow, motivation to quit bad habits and start new ones. You see, it's not enough to have good intentions. Intentions rarely get us anywhere. Friends, ever since I was a high schooler, I always had the intent of like working out like crazy, getting super buff and just getting that beach bod. So whenever the summer hit, shirts off, tan, like ready to go, right? That was like 18 years ago, never happened, right? Never have, I'm always just pale, skin and bones, right? Just nothing impressive underneath this suit, nothing at all. I always had that intention. I would get the 24, uh, t- yeah, 24-hour fitness gym membership and never use it. I would go to GNC and get whey protein. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to just use this protein and get like yoked. I would never even like get, eat half of the protein. It would just sit there. And it's like eight years old, but it's just sitting there. And it's like my intention to one day work out and get buff and beautiful never happens. We need genuine motivation to change more than an intention. And the motivation Jesus is giving us to kill our sin, right? to strive for holiness, it is twofold, okay? First, it's to know the value of holiness. To, to be able to cherish and understand the importance of holiness. And second, to fear the consequence of sin. To fear the consequence of sin and know the value of holiness. I'm gonna start with sin. What is the consequence of sin? You read that passage, it's clear. Hell. Hell is the consequence of sin, according to Jesus. That if we remain in our sins, what will our reward be? Jesus says, your reward will be hell. If you do not put to death sin in your life, your reward will be hell. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God clearly warned them. What did he say? He said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen to you? You will surely die. Sure, not like possibly, right? It's not a 50-50 shot. God tells Adam, you will surely die if you eat this fruit. Adam tells Eve, Eve understands that partially. But Satan comes up to Eve and says, you know what? You're not gonna die. You're not going to die. In fact, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Well, how did that work out? Who did Eve believe? Satan or God? Whose word did she follow? Why did Eve take the fruit and eat it? She ate it because she didn't believe God's word. She ate it because she didn't believe that when God said, if you eat it, you will surely die. Eve was like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you're bluffing. I don't think you mean it, right? I mean, no one would, right? Do, do we, 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 if you see a bottle and it says poison, you don't say, I don't believe it, 
right? It has like the skull and crossbones and it's like hazardous. You're not like, hey, I think these guys are bluffing. I'm just gonna go for it, right? None of us do that. And yet something happened, something was broken in Eve that she would say, you know, God said I was gonna die, but I don't think so. I'm going to trust Satan. I'm gonna trust the serpent. So she eats the fruits and what happens? She dies, right? Maybe not in that instance, but she died. She died spiritually and she died physically. Sin brought death into the world. God said it. Eve just didn't believe it. And so she disobeys, right? And though we criticize Adam and Eve for their disobedience, we're like, oh my God, you guys ruined everything. You guys ruined everything. You ever talk to a pregnant woman? She's angry at Eve. She is angry at Eve because of the childbearing pains that came from the curse of the fall. We blame them. We criticize them. But friends, we are the same. God tells us that if we keep lying to our loved ones, it will kill our relationships. What do you do? You keep lying. You keep lying and you think you're getting away with it. Not realizing that every lie you tell your spouse, every lie you tell your parents, that you, every lie you tell your friends, you're pushing yourself further and further away from their hearts. We know that if we keep lusting after others and if we keep objectifying them through pornography, that it will kill our hearts. It will ruin our capacity and experience of intimacy, but that doesn't stop us. We believe the lie that it's harmless. We believe the lie that this is just a stress reliever, that we're not addicted to this, that it's not that big a deal. God warns us, that if we practice greed against our brother, that if our brother comes to us in need and we withhold generosity from them, you know what John says? He says, the love of God is not in us. You know what we say? God doesn't really mean that. You believe that? God tells us if we as Christians are greedy, the love of God is not in us. And yet we're like, I don't really think so. I don't think you mean that. We play so many games with the word of God. We do not take him at his word. Church, he means it. God means it, Jesus means it. And when Jesus returns, he's not coming back to just walk on water. Jesus isn't gonna come back and just turn water into wine. Jesus, when he returns, is gonna come back to judge the living and the dead. And this is why he warns us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what Jesus says. And he's talking about himself. He's saying, fear me, fear God. Don't just fear the Romans. Don't just fear the Jewish leaders who can kill you, who can stone you, who can crucify you. Fear the one who can send you to hell. See, there's something wrong with us as we think about sin. We are more afraid of getting caught by our community. We're more afraid of getting caught by our pastors. We're more afraid of getting caught by our loved ones than being guilty before God than being guilty before God. One pastor, he, um, he told a very interesting story. Uh, I think he had 
heard from somebody that uh, two of his young church members were, um, you know, just kind of like making out in the church parking lot, right? He heard it, like just whatever. And so he kind of went to confront them. And he was like, how are you guys doing? You know, and, and you know, he's kind of roundabout. And uh, they're like, oh, okay, well, I'm doing okay. And he's like, hey, I heard about what you guys were doing last night in the church parking lot. And their hearts were just, just shattered. They were so scared. They're like, oh my gosh, our pastor heard about what we were doing, what we were doing. And they're like, oh my God, did you see? Did you see? Did anyone see? And he was like, I didn't see. I didn't see, right? But God did. And you know what they did? You know what their response was? <sighs> they were so relieved. They were so relieved that their pastor didn't see them, that no one had footage of what they were doing. And when he said, but God saw you, there was a sigh of relief, not a sigh of fear. Do you guys get that? Do you see how broken we are? How we fear man, how we fear community. We don't want to get in trouble with our peers and our friends and our pastors and our small group leaders or the deacons in the church, that we're more concerned about that than whether we stand before a holy God, guilty of trespass, guilty of sin. We don't care. There's something broken in us. I want us to be clear on something. Jesus is trying to motivate us to kill sin through the fear of hell. He is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I actually think that's very loving, very gracious. I know many people don't like that. Don't like the idea of like, oh, I need to go to God because I don't want to go to hell. They think that it makes Christianity look like escapism. But I think that's just a naive soundbite. I think that's a naive soundbite because if someone you loved was on a path to destroy themselves, what would you do? you would intervene. The truly loving deed is to tell them the truth, that you are about to drive yourself off a cliff. You are about to destroy your family. You are about to destroy your own life if you don't put that sin, that addiction, that behavior to death. The loving thing to do is to warn them and to plead for them. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's telling us, mortify the sin in your body, or else there will be hell to pay. You will be judged, and that judgment will declare that you are guilty, guilty of your sins and deserving of hell. But in our passage, there's more than just motivation through fear. Jesus is also motivating us to know the value of holiness. So he's telling us, yes, there is hell, but also even in an even greater, even in greater value is there is holiness offered to you. There is holiness available to you. So when he talks about the right eye and the right hand, now I'm a little offended by this because I'm a lefty, but it's because the right is the important, the, the, the important hand, the important eye. The right hand is your hand of authority. That's why if you're ever going to pray for someone, don't use the left hand. You can put the right hand on that person's head. That's like the symbol of authority. And Jesus is talking about precious things. Friends, is there anything you would trade for your sight and your hands? Is there anything on eBay, Craigslist, where they're like, hey, I will exchange this for you. Just give me your sight. Give me your hands. And honestly, on Amazon, there's nothing. 
There's nothing, right? Ask anyone who's lost those things. You cannot put a price on them. But you know what Jesus is saying here? Holiness is more valuable. Holiness is more valuable than your sight, more valuable than your hands and your work and your livelihood. If it came down to it, we should be willing and ready and able to surrender and give those things up, to cut those things off in pursuit of holiness. It's more precious than our sight and our dexterity. Church, do you know what it means to be holy? Sinclair Ferguson, he says that it means that we are devoted to God. Devoted to God. I know a lot of times we think of holiness as the absence of sin, right? It's perfection and righteousness, absolutely. But there's a positive aspect of holiness. And Sinclair Ferguson saying the positive aspect of holiness is devotion and it's love. The, uh, holiness tells us that we belong to him and nobody else, not even ourselves. That's what it means to be holy and to pursue holiness in our lives, to give ourselves wholly to God. And as I thought more about it, this truth really came clear to me when I put holiness and devotion in the context of marriage. I know it's a weird thing to say, but for a moment, let's take God out of marriage, just really quickly, okay? Uh, It's not heresy, just for the example's sake. Um, What's the most important thing in marriage? What is the most important thing in marriage? And the answer is, it's holiness. It's that that marriage is sacred. It's that a husband and a wife are devoted to one another, that they don't belong to themselves. They don't belong to another. They belong to each other. I am yours and you are mine. Holiness, devotion is the most important thing in marriage because the moment a man and a woman stop being devoted to one another, that's when the marriage dies. That's when it all ends. Your marriage can survive bankruptcy. Your marriage will survive bankruptcy. I've seen it. I've seen it. Your marriage can survive cancer. We've all been witness to that. Disease, illness does not destroy your marriage, not as long as you are devoted to one another. You can serve one another, love one another, encourage one another, be steadfast one another, for one another through that illness. Families, even losing your children, as devastating and as painful and as heart-shattering as that is, that doesn't have to kill your marriage. It will not kill your marriage if you are devoted to one another. But when a man looks at his wife and is no longer devoted to her, that's the end of his marriage. When a woman looks at her husband and is no longer devoted to him, but gives her heart to another. That's the moment the marriage ends. When a man chases and gives himself fully to his career and his work, that his devotion goes there rather than to his wife. When he gives himself over to his own addictions, that's when a marriage dies. When the devotion is gone, that's when the marriage becomes unholy. That's when the marriage ends. And this is what Jesus is telling us today. Our devotion, our holiness before God must be more precious than any devotion we could express towards sin, ourselves, or this world. God must be more precious 
in every way. Do you see that? Does this motivate you, church? Does this compel you that you and I, as the bride of Christ, see friends, we often talk about ourselves as sons of God and daughters of God. We are the children of God, right? We are the people of God. Those are absolutely all true. They're beautiful descriptions of of us. But the Bible uses one more, uh, like a closer, a more intimate, a more sacred relationship to describe us and Jesus. And it's between a bride and a bridegroom. And that's who we are. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our bridegroom. And if that reality is going to be something you and I experience, then Jesus Christ calls us to be devoted to him, to belong to him and to know that he is ours as well. And in our devotion, Jesus invites us and he pleads and he cries out to us to fight sin to hate sin, to put it to death at all costs, not just to avoid hell, but to truly experience devotion and holiness before our Lord. Do you guys see that? Is the Lord motivating you again towards holiness to fight sin? May that be real. Not just so you don't go to hell, but just so that, so that you can experience life with Jesus as your devoted bridegroom. So how do we mortify sin? How do we kill sin? How do we put this to death? How do we cut it off from our bodies, from our hearts, from our members, if this is not a literal thing? First thing, I'm gonna share three things with you guys. First, believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. John Owen, he writes this in his book again. Unless a man is a true believer and grafted into Christ, He can never mortify a single sin. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. That's so true. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Without the gospel, you know what you and I can do? Behavior modification. That's what we can do. We can do a 40-day plan. We can do different diets. We can try to curb our language, change some of our patterns. But you and I, we cannot change our hearts. We cannot transform who we truly are, not without the power of the gospel. Without the death of Christ, there is no death to sin. Where do we see this in the scripture? In Ephesians 5, 1, Paul writes, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, All over the New Testament, we are exhorted to follow Jesus, to be like him, to obey him, to pursue him, to cut off sin, to kill sin, to uh, flee from sin, resist temptation. What is the basis for this? It's Jesus. The fact that Jesus has given himself up for you. Jesus has loved you first to the point of death. And so friends, that is the basis of us resisting sin and killing sin. It's the fact that Jesus has loved you first. Jesus has died for you first. Jesus has given himself up for you. And because of that, you can imitate him. You can walk in love. You can follow him. Peter writes about the same heart. Uh, in Peter, 1 Peter 4, uh, verse one, he writes this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter's saying, yes. Yes, we should fight against sin. We should suffer in the flesh and cease from sin. We should live out the will of God and no longer for our human passions, but why? Because Jesus has first suffered. Jesus lived the life that we were called to live. Jesus resisted all of the temptations that you and I have failed to resist. But because he has done that first and because his life is now our life and the Holy Spirit is 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 alive and working inside of us. We have strength, we have power, we have been liberated from sin and death. So now that we can, now we can live for the will of God. Friends, that's the basis for you and I to actually try to mortify sin. It's the death of Christ. It's the gospel itself. So we have to remember this. We have to cling to this. Every time we struggle, every time we fail, every time we doubt, every time we get lazy with our sanctification, remember the gospel. Remember that there was a purpose for you being saved, not merely just to go to heaven, but to be like Jesus, to obey the will of God and give him glory. Friends, do you know why I am devoted to my wife? It's because she's devoted to me. We looked at one another at that altar. We got married in a church, which is different now. Nowadays, everyone's getting married at the beach and at some park or whatever it might be. We got married in a church. In the house of God, before the Lord and his people. And we promised and swore our devotion to one another. That's why I'm devoted to her, because she's devoted to me. The moment she gives her devotion to another man, you know what happens to our marriage? We're done. We are. It's sin. It would be sin. It would be God dishonoring. But that is the reality. If I break my devotion to her, it's over. If she breaks her devotion to me, it's over. Why should you be devoted to Christ? Because he's devoted to you. He loved you first. He gave himself up for you. He is absolutely devoted to you. So you can be devoted to him. That is the invitation of the gospel. That is what it means to be the bride of Christ. Friends, it is through justification, right? It's that through justification that we belong to Christ. The moment when we trust in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, we are forgiven. That is justification. Where our sins are nailed upon the cross, Jesus pays for them through his blood, And then his righteousness, his victory, his life, his holiness gets imputed unto us. That is the great exchange of the gospel. That is the doctrine of justification. And it's through that you and I become sons and daughters of God, that we belong to him. But it's through sanctification that we become like him. Okay? Let me say that again now that I've explained justification. Through justification, you belong to him. Through sanctification, you become like him. Friends, let's become like Jesus. That's the goal of the gospel. Church, in the battle against sin, you must know what you're fighting for and what you're not fighting for. And this is why the gospel is so important as well. Okay, I'm gonna say this. You are not fighting sin to become a Christian. 
You're not fighting sin. You're not trying to mortify sin and put it to death and wage war against your sin so that you can be a bride of Christ, so that you can be a son or a daughter of God. No, that is not what you are fighting for. That is already yours as you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You know what you're fighting for? Intimacy. You know what you are fighting for? Imitation. That is the goal of sanctification, not to prove yourself, not to win the love and approval of God. No, in sanctification, in this battle against sin, you are fighting to be like Jesus, to be close to your lover, your bridegroom. And that needs to be a reward and a treasure for us. Second thing on how to mortify sin, rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 12. This is what he writes. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons, or Spirit of God are sons of God. Amen. Right there, Paul clearly tells us that we put to death our sin by the Spirit by the Spirit of God? What does this look like in action? To rely on the Spirit. What does it mean to put sin to death through the work of the Holy Spirit? Because like, we don't know, right? We like, just close our eyes and open our arms and maybe the Spirit will come into our heart, right? Scripture has a better path for us and Ephesians 6 helps us in this. Uh, this is where Paul is talking about the armor, right? The armor of God. And in all of these things that God gives us to fight this great fight of faith. And in verse 16, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. And read this with me, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So you put those two things together You put sin to death by the Spirit. What is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. How do you activate and experience that? It's through prayer, okay? I know, it's vanilla. We're like, oh man, Pastor Michael, I thought you were gonna give me like the secret. This is the secret, the Bible. The Bible, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Do you wanna know when the Holy Spirit is most able to work in your life, to transform you when you spend time in the Word of God? The Spirit is always working in accordance and affirming the Word of God, applying the Word of God into our hearts and into our minds. And so, if you do not open your Bibles, if you do not read your Bibles, you are muzzling the Spirit. You are turning away from the Spirit. You are quenching the Spirit in your life because the Spirit's sword, how is the Spirit going to convict you and pierce your heart? It's through the Word. It is through the Word. And pray at all times. Friends, you know why prayer is so important? Because if you and I do not pray, how can we ever say that we have a posture of dependence before God? Prayer is the greatest expression of depending on God that we have been given in our lives. Okay, there's nothing else. And this is how terrifying it is for me at times. I can prepare an entire sermon without praying. All I have to do is read enough books, get on my computer and start typing away and thinking and listening to other people talk, right? 
And if I do that, if I prep sermon after sermon, message after message, meeting after meeting, event after event, without any prayer, can I honestly say I am depending on God for my ministry? No, I cannot. I'm actively and actually just depending on myself. It is all my work. And friends, that is why prayer is so important. We must rely on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the only way we're going to experience the mortification of our sins. How do you activate and experience that in your life? It's through prayer. When you're struggling with sin, when you're trying to be a better Christian, you know what you need to do? Not just try. You need to say, God, I need you. You need to take a moment in prayer and say, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me with my anger? Would you help me with my, with my integrity? Would you, would you help me with my patience, my generosity, my godliness, my service? Lord, please, I need your Holy Spirit to make me like Jesus. That's the only way this is gonna work. We have to pray. Lastly, we must deliberately restrain the flesh. We have to try. 1 Corinthians 9, 25, this is what he writes. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does Paul do? He disciplines his body. He practices self-control. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, British preacher, he wrote this. He says, there is a fire within you. Never bring any oil anywhere near it. Because if you do, that fire will rage and there will be trouble. Sin is a fire within us. And you can either feed it, you can tempt it, you can indulge in it. And as you bring oil and fuel to the fire within you, what happens to those fires? It grows. It grows. Your trouble grows. Your ungodliness grows grows and the harder it is to put that out. And yet, if you do not feed it, right? If you don't give it fuel, if you don't give it oxygen, that fire will, will shrink, it will diminish and eventually it will die. Another theologian exhorts us, refuse it, starve it, reject it. You cannot mortify sin without the pain of the kill. There is no other way. Friends, mortifying sin is not easy. If you've ever tried to end an addiction in your life, if you've ever had to try to change your, your mind, your heart, your patterns and your behaviors, that is so difficult. Especially the older we get. The older we get, the harder it is. The reality is, it is difficult. We need to be willing to experience that kind of pain. Right? If we want to mortify our sins, there is pain in the kill. We must will, be willing to experience that but know that the reward, Jesus, intimacy with him, right? experiencing him, becoming like him, he is always worth it. We do not work for our salvation, but we work for our savior. Would you fight against sin? Let's remember that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would renew in our hearts and minds a desire to be like you, God, I pray that right now you would, you would speak your devotion to our hearts. Help us know that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are your beloved. 
and as your beloved, God, may we devote ourselves to you. God, we love because you first loved us. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.